Welcome to the CSEN Center podcast titled Bitcoin Price Dynamics, Cause, Consequences, and Possible Policy Responses. My name is Mark McKenzie. Uh, and I'm Ole Ramo. Thank you very much for joining us uh, today and listening. Our aim is to share information on current topical issues related to the CSEN Center's three core pillars which are macroeconomics and monetary policy management, financial stability supervision, and payment and settlement systems, and governance. Overall, the CSEN Center is a thought leader for central banks and monetary authorities in the Southeast Asia and Pacific region. Please feel free to uh, find us on SoundCloud at CSEN Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSEN Center and on YouTube. There's also a special email, which is podcast at csen.org, if you have any questions and comments. In fact, for CSEN members, we will try and address any potential questions in a future webcast in a couple of weeks' time. So we will collect and collate questions and respond to them in a future webcast. Uh, Ole, last year the price of Bitcoin increased by more than 1,900%. It peaked at about 19,000 in early to mid-January, and I believe since this year the price has fallen significantly. The price seems to be extremely volatile. As we're economists and central bankers, are there in any insights that we can gain from the gyrations in the Bitcoin market? and about the behavior of buyers and sellers. Thank you, Mark. This is the whole uh, reason for having this podcast today. Let me take um, a step back and just very quickly say a word about Bitcoin and where Bitcoin came from. Um, Bitcoin was established shortly after the 2008 great financial crisis and the publication of a white paper titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system by this mysterious entity known as Satoshi Nakamoto, who no one knows um, uh, his true identity. However, I'm very hopeful that we will find out who this person is because I understand that KFC in Canada recently offered a free bucket of chicken (laughs) in return for for, for Bitcoin. In this context, um, I should point out just uh, to cover all the legal bases that uh, our presentation in no no sense um, represents a solicitation or encouragement to buy any cryptocurrency. Um, As Mark said, we are economists and we're interested in what the underlying price movements can can tell us in this context. So... um, don't go out and buy Bitcoin as a result of listening um, to this present, uh, listening to this presentation. Uh, Ole, um, Alan Greenspan uh, famously said in 2013, you have to really stretch your imagination to refer to what the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is. I have not been able to, maybe someone else, Alan Greenspan 20. Are there any other famous quotes uh, with Bitcoins that you're typically intrigued by? I wouldn't say famous quotes because I haven't seen much coverage of it, but there's been a lot more commentary recently by central banks uh, on this topic. 
And um, I think most of them are quite clear about the difference between the currency we are used to in our day-to-day -day operations, i.e. the cash in our pockets, be it dollars, euros, ringgits, or what have you, and uh, Bitcoin. I think a representative um, example of uh, a, a sort of the central bank commentary came by the Banque de France, and the governor made it quite clear that Bitcoin is not a currency, and we will return to this point a bit later on, or even a cryptocurrency. So the central bank, the French central bank, uh, put it out on paper that it's a speculative asset. So the value and extreme volatility of Bitcoin have no economic basis, and they are nobody's responsibility. And the central bank made it clear that those investing in Bitcoin do so entirely at their own risk. This is very different from um, the issues raised by the regular currencies um, that we have. In fact, um, there's a difference between what, what we know as a redeemable and, and as an irredeemable currency. So in return for the dollars or euros or pounds in your pocket, they can be redeemed into something else. So let me let me jump in there and let me just share an experience I had last week speaking with my niece in in, in New York because I have some questions myself, Ale. You know, she was very intrigued by Bitcoin and she wanted to learn about Bitcoin. But what I found uh, very very interesting in speaking with my niece in New York, she didn't know what was fiat currency. So I think we're living in a very, very strange world. So let me ask you, as students of economics, let us do some economics 101. How should we think about Bitcoin? Is it a currency? Is it a commodity? For example, like gold? Is it equity? How should we think about Bitcoin? That's a really interesting question and something that I find particularly intriguing in the sense that Bitcoin has attributes of all three. So there are certain aspects of Bitcoin that make it comparable to a currency. There are other aspects that make it comparable to a commodity. And finally, there are aspects that make it more of an equity. Uh, and let me go into a, a bit more detail on that. So Bitcoin, uh, certainly, f when we think about a currency, we think about three purposes. The first one is three purposes the currency has to fulfill. The first one is a store of value, i.e. you want to hold it because it keeps its value over time. Uh, the second is a currency fulfills um, the purpose of a unit of account. So things we buy in the shops are denominated in that, in that particular currency. And the third is uh, the currency fulfills a purpose as a means of exchange i.e. if I want to buy something from you, you very readily accept the, um, my money in, in return for the transaction. Looking at these three purposes, um, Bitcoin fulfills, or a cryptocurrency or a digital currency fulfills the role of a store of value at the moment. So it fulfills at least one of the three purposes of a currency. In contrast, many regulators regard Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as commodities. 
For example, the Commodities and Futures Trade Commission in the US has declared Bitcoin and other virtual currencies as a commodity in 2015. Um, but again, there are subtle differences between the commodities we think of, like oil or gold or, or other precious metals, and uh, Bitcoin. In the sense that um, in the commodity markets, they're sort of natural sellers of the asset. Um, they are, as we will see a bit later on, they are, up, they are lacking in terms of the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin market. Um, where do these, these sellers come from? Well, unlike commodities, the market does not contain many natural shorts such as exist in commodity markets, where, for example, farmers sell in order to hedge the prices of their crops. In Bitcoin, there are people who have gotten into Bitcoin at a much lower price in the past and now want to realize some of the gains. We'll have a look at whether how easy it is to do so and uh, how you can get out of Bitcoin uh, a bit later on. In addition, um, many industrial and agricultural commodities have some other uses, for example, gold being used in uh, electronics, platinum being used in, in the man manufacturing of cars and so on. Bitcoin has no practical use that can help us to calculate its uh, in intrinsic value. Finally, if you've kept up with the news in terms of Bitcoins, there are many um, features or a couple of features that make Bitcoin quite comparable to an equity. So one of the hottest items in financial markets are these initial coin offerings or ICOs, which are comparable to an initial public offering that we've seen in, in equity markets. The other, um, uh, another sort of uh, comparator between the equity markets and Bitcoins um, would be a share split in the equity market. And we certainly have seen what's known as a hard fork in Bitcoin, where the blockchain split between the uh, Bitcoin itself and uh, sort of a variant of Bitcoin, which is known as Bitcoin Cash. So this is like um, a company splitting its shares and doubling the number, the number of, um, of shares. And there's quite a bit of confusion on this, on this topic. Uh, indeed, um, some people have unearthed an earlier uh, comment by Satoshi Nakamoto, him or herself or themselves or whoever, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto <laughs> is, uh, where he's, he or she said that Bitcoins have no dividend or potential future dividend, therefore they're not like a stock. And the quote goes on to say, more like a collect collectible or commodity. So the creator of Bitcoin himself refers to his, his creation more uh, as a commodity. So for a bucket of free chicken, we hope that we can the identity of Santoshi Nakamoto will be revealed for a free bucket of chicken. But Ole, you just said... Bitcoin has no practical use. So I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to take this to the wherever it takes us. The evangelists of Bitcoin, Ole, are going to tell us that Bitcoin is everything for everyone. Bitcoin is here to save the world. It is here to save us from the fiasco that led us to the 2008 great financial crisis. 
It is here to save us from the debasing of fiat currency as a result of quantitative easing. So from that perspective, let me side a bit with Christine Lagarde, the IMF Managing Director, where in her recent address at the Bank of England conference in September, she clearly state that Bitcoin could in time embraced by countries with unstable currency. She went on to say that virtual currency might just be given existing currency and monetary policies and central bankers a run for their money. So let me ask you within this context, Ali, with that in mind, how should we value Bitcoin? Is there a fundamental or equilibrium value for Bitcoin? If you ask me, in my personal opinion, it is extremely difficult, if not to say impossible, to derive an equilibrium value for Bitcoin. And here I have to uh, take a step back and return to a little bit of finance uh, in this context. So the fundamental equation of asset pricing tells us that the price of a financial asset is the expected uh, is the sum of the expected future cash flows that this asset provides us. Now, these future cash flows have to be discounted to, to today, but in essence, the, um, the price of the asset is the um, expected present value of the future expected cash flows. Bitcoin has no future cash flows. Bitcoin has no cash dividends and never will. In addition, Bitcoin has no notion of a yield. There's no um, rate-setting central bank. There's no credit market. Um, and Bitcoin is not tied to any um, economy. We may return to the point a bit later on that Bitcoin is a closed system. There's no involvement of the banking sector. So in the absence of any future dividends, its value is set purely by the expectations of future demand and or the expectations of future resale values. In other words, normal means of valuation um, go out of the window and there's no way to value it fundamentally. Now, this may not be of any interest to the Bitcoin fundamentalists that, that you, you talked about, but I think that's what explains a, a lot um, of what's been going on in, in the market. There's a nice analogy that um, uh, I can use in this context, and it's, it's known as the Keynesian uh, beauty contest. And this goes back to something John Maynard Keynes wrote about and his idea of what explains the movement of, of the stock market. It's a thought experiment and uh, the idea is that uh, a newspaper is giving out a prize for picking the most beautiful people in a number of photographs. So in the original um, uh, example, there are 100 pictures and you are um, encouraged to, to pick the six most beautiful people, hence the beauty contest. Now, a naive strategy in this context would be to pick the six people that you think are the most beautiful. But that's probably not going to win you the prize because you need to pick the one, you need to pick the six people that the public at large thinks is are, are the, the most beautiful. So you need to think about 
what the other, um, what the rest of the public values as the most beautiful people. But all the other contestants are doing the, the same thing. So it becomes sort of a more convoluted uh, idea. And that the same is true for the stock market. It doesn't matter what you think the fundamental value of the share price is. It matters what other people's expectations or of a fundamental value of the share price is. And this is my analogy in terms of uh, Bitcoin. Um, the, the fact that um, Bitcoin's price is pure speculation about speculation. So you, you buy Bitcoins in the hope that you can sell it off at a higher price because other people's expectations about the Bitcoin's fundamental value are higher than, uh, than your own. So people price Bitcoin not based on what they think Bitcoin's fundamental value is, but r rather on what they think everyone else thinks the fundamental value of Bitcoin is or what everybody else would predict the average assessment of value is. So since, digital, digital, since Bitcoin lacks any intrinsic demand for use in production or consumption, and no central authority stands behind them, and an opinion about future demand should rests on a belief about um, the future use of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, and a belief that Bitcoin will remain in demand even further into the future. So if I can put it, you know, being an economist, uh, I need to, to include at least one little equation or sort of a little bit of, uh, of an <laughs> equation in here. So a willingness to hold uh, Bitcoin in period T uh, today requires a belief that will be accepted by other people in period T plus one uh, tomorrow which in turn requires that in period T plus one, we need to believe that the asset will be accepted in period T plus two, and so on and so forth. So it's a purely forward looking, as long as you expect that people will pay a higher price for Bitcoin in the future, you want to get in on the act. So you, you just had to get in there that Bitcoin is purely speculative. You really had to get into that. You really had to get into the tulip bubble, the sea, South Sea bubble and all that kind of stuff. So we're right back at the great uh, disagreement around the efficient market hypothesis. So there are no bubbles. That's what uh, Farmer would tell us. And then uh, Schiller would perhaps say, well, we have to move beyond economics and look at human behavior as well. So let me ask you this, Ali, as we think more about Bitcoin, what does the market of Bitcoin look like? The Bitcoin market is um, uh, divided into um, different different sectors. Before I get to these sectors, let me sort of again uh, say, say a bit about the, the textbook world of financial exchanges. So we generally assume that any trading, be it for a currency, a commodity, uh, a, a share, takes place in financial markets that are efficient. By efficient, we mean that the traded prices always reflect all available information. Again, it's a bone of contention between Farmer and Schiller, um, but uh, let's not get into that. We also expect uh, financial markets to be transparent. 
i.e. the in the securities business everything that is material has to be disclosed. In the virtual currency world there is no transparency to speak of and uh, I, we're going to mention a few uh, I'll, I'll mention a few aspects of the currency market in uh, a second and indeed it's very difficult to figure out what is going on. The Financial markets, as, as we know them, are also subject to arbitrage, by tec very technical word for meaning that any mispricing away from some notion of fundamental will be um, arbitraged away or will be corrected by market participants. We also expect that markets are liquid, i.e. even very large buy and sell orders do not markedly move prices uh, around. And we expect markets to be regulated. Uh, in the limit, um, we expect markets to compensate investors in some form, some shape or form, for um, any um, uh, any losses that that happen um, in terms of fraudulent uh, transactions uh, and so on. Um, and we also, um, and obviously underlying trading is this idea that our beliefs about the future differ. So trading only occurs if we all think that a value is adequately priced, there will be no trading. But some market participants need to expect that the price is going up, others that the price is going down. And it's this heterogeneity of views about the future value of the asset and some sort of equilibrium price that generates trading in the first place. Now let me talk about the, the variety of uh, Bitcoin intermediaries. We, we can quibble about the number, but there are sort of roughly uh, 400 what are known as exchanges where buyers and sellers of Bitcoin trade. Now the primary function of these exchanges is to facilitate trading with publicly posted prices and order books. So these customer orders are directly and anonymously matched via autom automated algorithms. So calling them exchanges I think is doing them a favor. They're not exchanges in the traditional sense, uh, i.e. they're not like a stock exchange. Um, that uh, uh, and is not then they don't abide by the rules of traditional stock exchanges or, or other exchanges. They're more um, uh, the closest analogy is probably what are known as, as sort of electronic communication networks than traditional exchanges. The market is very highly concentrated, and um, I'll, I'll mention some figures uh, a bit later on. And um, th they're more like brokers and dealers, but somehow this, this name exchanges became established uh, in this context. To trade on an exchange, you are required to maintain an account with the exchange uh, and to hold your balance of bitcoins and regular currencies for trading purposes. Again, there's no involvement of, of any banking sector to speak of. And um, the primary advantage of these exchanges or the exchange-based accounts is that everything proceeds faster. 
So there's a faster confirmation of trades, but if an exchange falls short of safeguarding your customer accounts, the holder can experience severe losses. And we certainly have seen uh, some, some severe losses in, in, in this regard. So there's this risk of, uh, um, of, of fraud and, and losing, losing your investment. Um, which is exacerbated by the complete lack of a regulatory oversight and a safety net for the average user. Exchanges sound like a very neutral place to trade, but as I said, they're really bro broker-dealers. The, um, the second participant are the miners, which are the people who create Bitcoin in the first instance. So that's and this is a very, um, they're very large ec economies of scale, i.e. the bigger you are, the more profitable it is to create new Bitcoins. So it's um, what we've seen over time is that the very large universe of miners is becoming more and more concentrated into a very small number of intermediaries. So only uh, um, what, what we've seen is uh, in, um, that we only have a, a handful of professional mining outfits and pools that control the production of Bitcoin. Potentially, this they can collude and uh, have an effect on, on the Bitcoin price. The third type of intermediaries are those that connect the final user owner of Bitcoin with the network, and they are known as the Bitcoin wallets. Um, wallets are almost entirely free of the range of regulations with which mainstream financial institutions that provide similar services such as traditional banks must uh, comply. So as I mentioned, um, this is a, 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 closed, uh, um, a closed system. There are a couple of um, idiosyncrasies that I would like to talk about. One is that uh, the rate of Bitcoin creation is constant. So the idea is that it would take 10 minutes to um, to create a new uh, uh, to create a new transaction on on the on on the blockchain. So a Bitcoin transaction does not clear i.e. it's not final until it has been added to the to the blockchain and that takes about 10 minutes. We also it's it's sort of become customary that bitcoin transactions are not final until we've seen another five transactions added to the blockchain. So all in all it may take up to an hour for a bitcoin transaction to become um, to become final. Um, which doesn't really help help you if you are at Starbucks and trying to get yourself a coffee and you have to wait an hour for the Bitcoin transaction to go through. It's probably not a big impediment if you're buying a car or, or, or a house. But um, just, um, just to highlight some of these practical difficulties in terms of doing low item, low value um, transactions with uh, Bitcoin. So, so what I'm gathering from all that you're saying, um, Ole, is that within this uh, Bitcoin cryptocurrency space, there are several different actors. 
and within the structure itself there are different types of market structure it may be uh, monopolistic it may be oligopolistic uh, different structures but let me let me just share a few stories that I've heard recently around Bitcoin uh, for example I had a friend in uh, Kuala Lumpur Malaysia right here in Kuala Lumpur Malaysia who went to the night market and told me that uh, Bitcoin was being used in the night market. I'm a little bit surprised as to what we would be able to purchase with Bitcoin within the night market. I also had a friend recently who mentioned that uh, uh, some person had closed her business. She was a florist. She closed her business to, to go and trade into Bitcoin. And just this past Monday, I met a young man who had quit his job and decided to go and mine Bitcoin and to trade Bitcoin. So these are the new breeds of entrepreneur as far as I'm concerned. It's just as a lot of young people get into Grabcar, Uber. So it's a new breed of entrepreneur. So let me ask you, are there any dangers to society? What are the weakness within the, that you can see within the Bitcoin market? Are there any weaknesses? I've, um, I'd like to highlight just a few, um, again, idiosyncratic features or, as you call them, weaknesses in the market as I see it. So Bloomberg um, last year, at the, um, um, in December of last year, noted that um, about a thousand individuals own about 40% of the Bitcoin uh, market. So the market is extremely concentrated. Now, these individuals are known as the whales. And um, what, what this means is that uh, these whales, many of whom have known each other for a long time, and it's a very small group of, of well-connected people, potentially they can coordinate their moves or preview them to a select few. Because Bitcoin is a, is a cryptocurrency and not a security, there is no prohibition about the sharing of, of information and therefore a trade in which a group agrees to buy enough to push the price up and then cashes out uh, very quickly after that. So this underscores my earlier point that the Bitcoin market is extremely co coordinated. Um, uh, um, ex sorry, extremely concentrated and therefore prone to exaggerated um, price moves. In traditional markets, we also have the involvement of a, a lot more long-term players, long-term investors such as pension funds, insurance companies, and so on. There are numerous legal and technical challenges that make it very difficult for institutional, i.e. professional investors to hold cryptocurrency assets for the customers, one having to do with regulations such as knowing knowing your customer, you have to know where where the funds come from in investment, and uh, as as you said, the extreme volatility of Bitcoin makes it very does not make it attractive as a long term um, um, uh, um, a long term asset to hold for an institutional uh, investor. What we've also seen is that many of these exchanges that I mentioned a minute ago have some rather dodgy technology underpinning them. So in some of the extreme price movements in Bitcoin that we've seen, 
some of the trading platforms have taken several minutes, if not to say hours, to confirm a trade. Once again, that sort of underlies some of the the creaking infrastructure underlying um, the uh, a, a Bitcoin. There are um, estimates that uh, the in general the Bitcoin system can do seven transactions per second. Now you have to compare that to someone like something like a credit card system that can do several hundred thousand transactions per second. So the infrastructure is lagging behind those of other comparable um, trading trading systems. There's a a long litany, a long list of uh, Bitcoin fraud and theft. Um, overall, um, it's been estimated that about $630 million were lost in terms of cyber theft, hacks of exchanges um, and, uh, and other uh, entities uh, or due to problems of Bitcoin exchanges. Of course, um, everyone is aware of the, um, the Mt. Gox um, uh, default in, uh, in February 2014, which alone was worth about $473 million um, at the time. So again, this, this attests to the creaking infrastructure and cybersecurity of some of these uh, exchanges. But there seems to be something every month or every other month that an exchange or a wallet is being hacked and, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin lost. Indeed, some of the big trading businesses have recently uh, um, seen uh, examples of insider trading of mem of their of, of their own um, uh, uh, their own staff um, being accused of insider trading, i.e., front running um, particular trades that they knew were going to happen. So the potential for market abuse uh, is very large. Uh, Ole, let me uh, jump in uh, as you collect your thoughts and uh, inhale a bit and all that kind of stuff because you're using some very interesting words. Uh, you know, I mean, a part of what we are as uh, at CSEN is concerned about is uh, for members is financial stability. And in your uh, response just now, I heard words such as concentration, collusion, inside the trading, market abuse, dodgy infrastructure. And, you know, I said earlier that, uh, you know, Bitcoin is here to save the world. Um, I know the vice chair for the U.S. Federal Reserve said recently, um, I think it was in November last year, that cryptocurrencies and digital currencies may pose a th threat to financial stability as they gain in popularity. And we certainly believe in 2017 it has gained in popularity so can a case be made only for regulation i mean is, are we concerned around things like cyber security things like consumer protection can a case be made for regulation you raise a very interesting and very difficult uh, issue in the sense 
that, um, and certainly one that has bedeviled uh, the financial regulation for a long time, which is where to draw the line between uh, or how to deal with uh, financial innovation. So Bitcoin certainly isn't the, the, the first financial in innovation and, and it, won't, it won't be the last. There's a very fine line between um, investing activity and gambling, um, which frequently passes itself off as a real investing um, activity. So in the um, in finance, legitimate activities and innovation and speculative hysteria often appears side by side. And uh, financial innovation can be used for good purposes, financial inclusion um, or offering uh, better ways for savers, higher returns, what have you. But financial innovation can also be abused for speculative speculative purposes. So I think we're at we're at a point where regulators must find the right balance between mitigating the risks and allowing the the sector as a whole to develop. I think at this point the fears still focus more on on investor protection than overall financial stability. Um, simply because uh, the overall value of, of Bitcoin at about $530 billion is still may sound large, and it is larger than the GDP of many countries, but compared to the value of global assets, it's still rel relatively small. And I think this is sort of a, a line that most cent central bankers are following um, at the moment. Now, that being said, um, we have seen a number of regulatory actions, um, probably the biggest one in Korea. Korea has been very uh, active. In, it's one of the largest Bitcoin markets, one of the most active Bitcoin markets. And uh, Korea has had a ban on these initial coin offerings. They have banned the trade of, of Bitcoin futures. Um, they were mulling the idea of taxing capital gains from cryptocurrency trading. And there's a proposal of a bill that's going through the parliament at the moment to limit the trading um, uh, in uh, the overall trading of Bitcoin in that country. But certainly there have been other countries and China has been very active. There's also a ban on, on, on the ICOs in that country. And most intriguingly, they're trying to ban the mining of Bitcoins uh, in China. China mines about three quarters of the world's Bitcoins. Um, in um, uh, in uh, industrialized countries or in Western countries, there have been a lot of warnings about Bitcoin, but sort of no real regulatory uh, actions um, as such. S certainly, I mean, certainly amongst uh, CSUN members, uh, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, it's uh, the move around regulation seems to be to capture the market integrity, anti-money laundering um, areas. So Malaysia, for example, issued uh, an exposure draft to bring cryptocurrency trading within 
the anti-money laundering legislation, and I believe Singapore, likewise, is capturing the cryptocurrency within the anti-money laundering regulations as well. So we're seeing a lot of regulations within CSEN member countries as to where to place cryptocurrency. But uh, I want to get back to an earlier point you made, Ali, about arbitrage. Uh, I want to just ask whether or not, uh, or why is there no arbitrage in the Bitcoin market? I and mean, do you have any thoughts as to why that doesn't occur? I, I have some thoughts. Um, I, have, I haven't traded Bitcoin myself, so don't take my word for it. But my understanding is that selling Bitcoins is not quite as straightforward as, as, as actually buying them. Uh, the reason is that uh, the number of merchants that accept the cryptocurrency directly is very limited. Uh, most of the platforms, i.e. most of the exchanges, have the habit of limiting withdrawals to small sums or having very lengthy delays in terms of um, uh, uh, processing uh, any, any sell orders. And um, the exchanges are also um, somewhat uh, illiquid, they're expensive to navigate, or they're simply untrustworthy and dangerous. And remember um, that it can take up to, in addition to the time delays on the, on the exchanges, remember there's this one hour period, you have to wait until a Bitcoin transaction becomes final. Given the volatility of Bitcoin, a lot can happen in that <laughs> one hour. Um, so you may not uh, you may not get get the price that you want, and uh, it's a very one-sided market in the sense that when the price is rising fast, those who use Bitcoin will be reluctant to part with it because you want to benefit from the price increase. At the same time, when the price falls, those who sell goods and accept Bitcoin will be reluctant to to accept it. Um, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a, um, a paradox here, and there are certainly academic studies that suggest that uh, of the new Bitcoin mined, a large percentage, um, and the numbers are sort of around 60% in in one study and 50% in in the other study, that of all the new Bitcoins, uh, that more than half or half or more than half is not being spent but is being kept for speculative speculative purposes so these um these the, these new bitcoins that have been mined are held more as a store of value than as a medium of exchange um underscoring this idea that uh, the high value of Bitcoin is supported to a fair extent by optimistic expectations of further, of further appreciation by the Bitcoin enthusiasts. We have a, a fairly, good a fairly good idea of financial markets in the sense that um, a fairly good model, I should say, of financial markets where we have two types of investors. Uh, we have the so-called value investors who are more long-term long investors and we have the sort of short-term or noisy sp speculators. And it's, it's the, the latter that push prices around and the value investors come back in and uh, bring the price back towards the, its fundamental value. So the first thing is no one is quite sure what the fundamental value of Bitcoin is. And there really aren't 
that many value investors uh, in 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 the Bitcoin market. So how would how would this work? So if say um, uh, a a thing, I'm not going to use Bitcoin. I'm going to call <laughs> it a thing, is worth ten thousand dollars <laughs> as Bitcoin is is today. Yes. And people get excited and bid it up to $10,100. Value investors, i.e. the longer-term investors, will see it being overvalued and will start selling, i.e. capping the upside. If this causes these excitable speculators to start selling the the thing itself and it falls all the way down to $9,900, then the value investors will see it being undervalued and start buying again, flooring the downside. So prices can fluctuate around fair value. And even though the value investors may be mistaken about what fair value is, 10,000 in this context, the basic process of trying to match price with value puts some constraints on volatility. Now, we don't have that in the Bitcoin market because A, we don't know what the there's no good idea about what the fundamental value is. And B, we don't, to my mind, we don't have this this uh, this separation between uh, the value investors and the short-term uh, speculators or the, the, the more speculative uh, 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 investors. So an asset that trades purely on, on, uh, on trust is free from these constraints. If you measure if your measure of value is simply that people like it, uh, then the fact that the price has fallen means that that the price should have fallen. Um, so, if you go back to my thing that that used to cost ten thousand, if it goes up to eleven thousand and then falls to nine thousand, there is no value-based argument uh, to stay in to buy it. You should buy it if you think that other people will buy and sell it um, if you think that other people will sell. But um, that's sort of the best the best we can that's pretty much the best we can say. It's um, there's a bit of um, a silver lining on the on the horizon that uh, some of the biggest exchanges in the world, I should say some of the biggest future exchanges in the world, uh, have started to um, provide futures um, on on Bitcoin. Um, I think that will certainly help um, in, in, the, in the process. However, that being said, uh, again, some of the largest US brokers will not immediately trade Bitcoin trades f- for clients. And many of the big global banks that are allowing such trading will clear for customers only after implementing very strict standards that will make transactions very difficult. So there's good news that there's now an instrument to get this process of shorting or selling uh, or making the the, the sale of Bitcoin uh, easier. But there are some, some practical problems in the implementation. In an interesting twist um, in terms of the introduction of these futures, it's generally said that Bitcoin futures will legitimize Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I would argue that 
uh, trading Bitcoin futures does not make Bitcoin more of a currency. In fact, quite the opposite. It will allow people to bet on the value of Bitcoin in US dollars without actually owning it. So um, what's the currency that people own? Well, it's the, it's the US dollar or it's pound sterling or the euro. So the, the real currency um, that, that, that we have in our pockets is the currency. What this means is that Bitcoin becomes an underlying asset, but an asset is not money. So we will speculate on Bitcoin just as we would speculate on a commodity or on a share price or on a, sh on a stock. But the commodity is not money and the share price or the, and the stock is not money. The, the asset is our dollars or ringgits or Singapore dollars or what have you. So I, I gather from all that you have said that um, with the Chicago Board of Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange starting to trade uh, Bitcoin futures, that is somewhat of a positive development. But then I also heard a lot about the valid investors. And then if we add to some of the what you have said around market infrastructure in terms of the the infrastructure behind Bitcoin uh, comments about insider abuse and all those uh, uh, market concentration collusion. My big question is, uh, given the gyration in Bitcoin in twenty seventeen, how would we explain the rise in Bitcoin in twenty seventeen? I think it's a combination of a few factors. I would like to think all of them can be explained by the good old fashioned economics of supply and demand. It has nothing to do with Bitcoin being a, a super, superlative asset or um, you, you know, the, the, the asset to save us from ourselves um, going forward. I already talked about the, the sort of the very fragile trading in infrastructure, um, which allows some very large price, uh, price, price movements. Just to give you an example, um, many assets are traded on different exchanges. So, you know, US dollars are traded uh, in Singapore, they're traded in Hong Kong, they're traded in London, they're traded in New York, but prices um, are fairly similar and if they aren't similar the, the price differences will be arbitraged away. What we found in terms of Bitcoin is that on the top three Bitcoin exchanges which are Bitfinex, Bitstamp and Coinbase the same Bitcoin asset traded at very large spreads up to $4,000. So that's an enormous uh, difference in terms of the individual exchanges and attests to the illiquidity of the market that if on one exchange you can get bitcoins for and I'm making this up for 12,000 and on the, uh, on the different exchange you would get it for 16,000 and there's no process of aligning the prices across these, uh, these uh, exchanges. So that's um, one of the uh, 
I think one of the manifestations of this being a very narrow, very illiquid uh, market. Another manifestation uh, of this is the, the large back backlog of unconfirmed transactions. So this leads to concerns about the accuracy of settlement prices for Bitcoin trades. So there's a very limited capacity in terms of, of, of handling transactions that we don't see on, 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 uh, on sort of proper, uh, proper exchanges. I think one of the interesting things um, about Bitcoin is supply and demand st still work, but they do so in a somewhat different manner. The thing about Bitcoin is that its supply is fixed at um, 21 million Bitcoins. So we will reach that number in uh, about 2140. So at the moment, we have about sort of 16.8 of the 21 million Bitcoins and only 1,800 are mined uh, uh, every day. So for all intents and purposes, there is a fixed supply of uh, Bitcoin. Given that the supply of Bitcoin is limited, uh, the only way for the market to respond to changes in demand is through changes in prices. Remember, the, um, the number of Bitcoins that can be produced per day is capped, um, which is quite different from how normally um, the market would, would respond if an item is selling like, like hot cake, what the company does is uh, to rush out production and produce more of, the, of, of that good to benefit from the increased demand. Now, that's not possible in, in the case of Bitcoin because the supply uh, is fixed and has to be treated uh, as such. Since the future path of Bitcoin is predetermined and known with near certainty, movements in Bitcoin's price will essentially reflect only changes in demand. So we have A that, we have markets that are uh, relatively illiquid, which, which ex exacerbates the short-term uh, price movements. And add to this fact uh, the, the idea that uh, Bitcoin has no intrinsic demand or intrinsic value, um, expectations about medium and long-run future price growth will be pre predominantly driven by expectations relating to the future growth in the transactional use. And we can actually use the old-fashioned supply and demand diagram to illustrate what I think is going on in, um, in the Bitcoin market. So when we think of supply and demand, we think of a downward sloping demand curve that's meeting an upward sloping supply curve. And greater demand is, uh, can be illustrated by an upward movement of the demand curve such that quantity increases and price increases. Now, in the case of Bitcoin, the, de the demand curve is vertical and we have a, sorry, the supply curve is vertical and that meets a downward sloping demand curve. Now, the same shift in demand up has no effect on supply, which is fixed, but it will have a much larger, sorry, a, the same uh, shift in demand equivalent to the earlier case will have a much bigger price effect. So we refer to this as an inelastic supply. 
So in the face of uh, a demand, much larger demand with an inel inelastic uh, supply curve, I think it explains the much bigger price response to the same demand shock in, in the inelastic uh, supply market. There's some very interesting work uh, that's, that um, I came across in um, a working paper by the Bank of Canada that tried to take out the speculative aspect of the Bitcoin exchange rate versus the US dollar. And uh, in fact, in terms of their somewhat complicated uh, uh, model, they um, came to the conclusion that back in 2015, when the Bitcoin price was um, about $300, the sort of intrinsic value of Bitcoin removing this speculative aspect is about $100, $150. I would expect that number to be a little bit higher now, but uh, A, this attests to how difficult it is to find um, a fundamental value of Bitcoin, and B, I think it's a nice illustration of the large speculative aspect in, uh, in the Bitcoin price. So what we have is we have the speculative demand we have a temporarily limited supply. We have uh, the same is true for many of the substitutes, Bitcoin substitutes that follow a similar rule to Bitcoin in, in only having um, a limited supply and f limits on the sort of short selling of, um, of Bitcoin. And what you get is this price surge that we saw in, in 2017. I think the other, the final factor that adds into this is a lot of asymmetric information or um, or opinion in the sense that we don't um, we don't have full all the information. It's not a very transparent market. We don't have lots of information, and the the information that does exist is uh, mainly through online forums, user groups. Um, that facilitate that sort of spur trading and um, as um, the sort of phenomenon as it's now known as fear of missing out this sort of speculative um, aspect here. And that to me is what explains, um, it may be conventional, it may be traditional, but the, the laws of supply and demand still explain what's going on in the Bitcoin market and it's not the intrinsic value of Bitcoin as such. Wow. Thank you, Ali. I think we are at the end of this podcast where we we looked at Bitcoin price dynamics, causes, consequences, and possible policy response. Certainly what I learned from my conversation with, with Ali is we're in a new space. Uh, there are some... Uh, 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 market issues that we need to address to get greater transparency. Uh, we have to get regulations around consumer protection. Thank you very much for joining and listening. Our aim was to share information on a topical issue which we believe is relevant to CSEN members. Again, please feel free to find us on SoundCloud at CSEN Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSEN Center and find us on YouTube. And we do wish to receive your questions via email, podcast at csen.org. As Ole said in the beginning, we hope to have a webcast webinar 
in the future and we are we will continue this conversation thank you very much